Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am so thrilled and excited today to introduce Dr. Chris Byrer. He is world-renowned global HIV researcher. He's a Desmond M. Tutu Professor of Public Health and Human Rights at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's a professor of epidemiology, international health, health behavior and society and nursing. He is also the director of Johns Hopkins training program in HIV epidemiology and prevention sciences and a founding director of the Center for Public Health and Human Rights. On top of that, he is a fantastic friend, mentor, scholar. He has written countless articles advocating for HIV and human rights. He's so wonderful and we're so lucky to have him today. Welcome, Chris. Well, it's lovely to be here, Carmen. Such a joy. Lovely to see you and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Amazing. I usually do an origin story of how I know you. Mm. And so listeners, uh, I think I was a postdoctoral fellow. Actually, I think I was actually a PhD student in 2010. And I was at the International AIDS Society annual conference. It was in Vienna. And beside yeah. my poster was Dr. Tonya Petit. And our posters were beside each other. And we started chatting. And she started telling me about you. I don't know if you know this. And how I needed to come and spend time at the center because she was doing her PhD at the time. And so I actually was able to come for a little bit in 2012. And then luckily stay in touch with you since then. So I've actually heard about you for more than 10 years, but I think no knew about eight years. So, and last summer, um, sorry, last fall, I was able to do the Fulbright research chair on my uh, sabbatical and spending time with you is, was one of the highlights of my sabbatical. So I'm really pleased you're here today. Okay. And listeners, Chris is actually a great cook. Just a tidbit there. So I've introduced you a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what is your elevator speech? If I'm in an elevator post COVID vaccination globally and was like, what kind of things do you do? How do you describe it in a few floors? Well, you know, it's interesting in the past, it always took a little while to explain infectious disease epidemiology. <laughs> now every journalist in the world can pronounce it and people know what it is. And, uh, you know, this is the second pandemic that I have been working on. Obviously, HIV was the first. And, uh, you know, epidemiology really is the, the science of studying um, uh, things that 
happen to populations, not just individuals, right? It's, it's, uh, it actually comes from the Greek word, uh, epi is a pond, and demos is the people, like democracy. Epidemos is upon the people. I started this work really as a very young person because I, I started medical school in New York City and walked into uh, the AIDS wards in the mid 80s uh, when, you know, HIV was absolutely upon the people of New York. Um, and, you know, in that work and in that time, very quickly realized, uh, as so many did, that that the social determinants of health really mattered. Uh, and then my first job when I finished my training was in Thailand in Chiang Mai. And I spent uh, the next five years there, but working in the region in Burma, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, China, Malaysia, and just increasingly understanding and seeing uh, how some societies, communities, activist groups, but also governments were able to respond and some were just absolutely failing, like the military regime in what was then called Burma. Now Myanmar, maybe it's going back to Burma uh, after the coup a few days ago. And in contrast, watching Thailand have a vigorous response. And at the time, you know, the only tools we really had were behavior change, condoms, and STD treatment. And with that simple toolkit, Thailand was able to largely control uh, it's heterosexual epidemic of HIV. It was an extraordinary thing to watch. And uh, that really also taught me about the centrality of human rights. And so I, I started working more and more in the human rights arena. Eventually, I ended up with two careers. I had an HIV career and a human rights career. And I realized at a certain point that um, it's probably a good idea to have one career. <laughs> and that's why I started the Center for Public Health and Human Rights at Hopkins to really integrate those elements. And, and on the one hand, to really try and bring the tools of modern epidemiology and population science to human rights investigations. And on the other, to really bring human rights principles into science and medicine and public health in a way that they had really not been sufficiently a part of the way people think about, about health and about uh, inequality uh, and about social justice uh, and health. And that has really been my life's work. And now, of course, with COVID-19, we saw, you know, the health disparities and the social determinants of health replicated within a matter of months. By April, it was clear that the United States had disproportionate burdens in African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, prisoners, detainees with just incredible speed. Right. And again, the the terrible inequalities in our healthcare system, not having a national health system, having this work based insurance when millions of people are losing their jobs and therefore are losing their work based insurance. And all these people that we call essential workers having no paid sick leave, not having adequate health insurance, living in crowded housing in redlined, deliberately restricted neighborhoods, that legacy of segregation in this country, uh, all adding to you know much higher burdens of disease, more hospitalization, more death um, so quickly. I mean, it took us 20 years to understand those factors in HIV, and, and we were already, uh, it was abundantly clear what was happening um, in the early spring, and now it's only worsened. And now that we're in the era of the vaccine rollout, it's being replicated again in vaccine access and distribution. 
And you know, it's it's such a it's such a contrast, Carmen, because I, I'm working with the COVID vaccine prevention network, so working on these vaccine trials. The biomedical science has been spectacular. Spectacular. I mean, we we have two highly effective and safe vaccines in 10 months from the sequence of the virus. Uh, being published by the Chinese scientists. Uh, just breathtaking. But then the public health infrastructure to roll it out, both in the U.S. and globally, is just not what we've invested in. And we just don't have it. Absolutely. We have, you know, like a firefight of rich countries against poor. And the wealthy have bought up all the doses. Yeah. Um, so you've sort of taken us on a journey. And I want to explore that further because what I was going to ask you and now I'm like hmm I wonder if, if if this is if I'm right about this I was going to ask you I'm going to show up at your gorgeous house with my time machine and I think you told me in 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 what you just said where we would go if I was to ask you where would this time machine go where you started thinking about health and human rights it was in New York City in the 80s is that right because you said that in the middle of the AIDS crises in the in the mid '80s, but I also want you to know that this this time machine can have multiple stopovers. Oh. So it looks like kind of like what well, would it be in Thailand? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> because you've been so many places, I've just it feels like your journey has has been sparked by by many instances or many stories. Is there a story that stands out to you that? that is important in shaping your trajectory. I'm sure there's yeah, many. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say uh, we, we should make two stops on this timeline. And the first one is that is that early period of HIV. And then the second is when I was really working intensively in Thailand and in Burma. So uh, the HIV part of it and New York City, just for your listeners. So I'm a gay man. I had a, a lover for a while and when I started medical school I was single and and within about a year I met a fantastic guy who was absolutely a beautiful man in in every way his name was Ed Luther he was a New York actor a Shakespeare actor and, and in those days everybody was there we had this short kind of running joke that that he was a waiter actor model and everybody was a waiter actor model <laughs> He actually was. He actually was a waiter and he was an actor and he was a model. He went to the Juilliard School um, and we were just overwhelmed. I was I went to State University of New York, which is in um, East Flatbush, Brooklyn, and it's the only public medical school in the city. The others are all private and associated with really nice hospitals, you know, New York Hospital, Cornell, Columbia. But our hospital was Kings County Hospital, which was a huge, impoverished, old 19th century place where they, we still had wards, huge wards separated only by curtains, one for men, one for women. Had a huge TB ward. It was also where the New York City prisoners, people in jail and detention, if they needed hospitalization, came there. So we had this huge prison ward. Wow. The place was just absolutely so many people, uh, young gay men, black and brown people from Brooklyn, 
lots and lots of drug users, men and women, from the jail, mostly drug users uh, and prison guys and women developing AIDS, but also the community around us was largely Haitian immigrants. So we had a huge number of those folks, uh, hemophiliacs, of course, and lots and lots of babies. The pediatric ward was just absolutely full of infants and babies because we didn't know how to prevent perinatal transmission. And it was a very scary time to be a medical student because the hospital was grossly understaffed. We were under-equipped. We were, you know, I was on the pediatric rotation when we had no pediatric-sized needles and we had to use adult equipment on little, you know, dying kids. It was absolutely brutal. And we had nurses who also worked in private hospitals in the city and they would, like, steal things so that we would have bandages and IV bags. Oh, thank goodness. Really, you know. And you have to remember, Ronald Reagan was president and he was starving the cities. And Mayor Koch was our mayor in New York. He was incredibly corrupt, uh, believed to be a closeted gay man. Nobody knew, but he wouldn't really address the HIV epidemic. And it was a time of great racial tension uh, in New York City and and a lot of killings of black Americans by the police. Um, uh, so uh, not so dissimilar to uh, what's been happening here. but. Part of what made it all so painful was that so many of my patients were young gay men my age. And then uh, Ed started to get sick. And, uh, you know, at the time, there wasn't a, a test for HIV. And then there was. And when that test was finally available in 1985, everybody got tested and it turned out that was when we learned that you could have asymptomatic infection before that it was just clinical aids right we just diagnosed people with pneumonia and ks and other kinds of horrible opportunistic infections cancers but suddenly we realized okay there's a lot of people walking around who are perfectly healthy who have hiv infection and in new york city among gay men in new york city it was 50 percent 50 percent of us wow were and 50% of us were not. And it turned out that that was Ed and I. He had the virus, I didn't. We were then careful going forward. But, you know, he, he got sicker and sicker. And this was, I finished med school, then I did my internship, and then came to Hopkins to do a residency, and he progressed and progressed. But at the time, you know, Johns Hopkins University, where I still teach, had no domestic partner benefits. So all the other residents who had husbands and wives and were straight couples, they had health insurance and for their kids by virtue of being in the residency program. My residency director complained to me that I, he said, everybody likes you and people are very happy with your work, but people keep finding you asleep on couches, you know? And it's like, what is happening? You know, you're late for things. So I just decided to be honest and I said, well, um, I, I'm living here with my partner. He has advanced AIDS. Uh, I'm the only caregiver. He doesn't have any income because he's an actor and he can't work. And uh, so, you know, my residency funding is all the funding we have. Actually, his first hospitalization lasted seven weeks and wiped us out financially. And every time he got sick, I had to drive him to New York to, you know, which is because he had New York Medicaid uh, at that time. Wow, that's uh, a far drive. Oh, it was, a, it was a nightmare with a, you know, with a febrile, nauseous, vomiting man in the back seat, you know. 
And uh, then I would leave the car and take the train and then try and show up <laughs> my residency. And uh, and he listened and nodded. And then he said, well, you can't have any family leave because this is not a family member. And uh, so, there, you know, the the social injustices, the lack of civil rights for gay couples, for same sex couples was just so stark. And you have to remember at that time that uh, there was a challenge to the sodomy laws and they were upheld. The Supreme Court upheld the sodomy laws. So we were criminal and it was right at the height of the AIDS epidemic. It just felt like such a such a slap in the face. And, and then eventually in my last year of residency, uh, I developed pulmonary Kaposi sarcoma, which is an extremely lethal form of the disease. Uh, and, and he died a rough death, uh, died in my arms in New York. And then Hopkins, uh, wouldn't even give me time off for the burial or any, any, oh my of that. God. um, I'm so sorry for so, uh, for your loss and then also for uh, the crap you had to deal with at work. Uh, <laughs> like, are you kidding me? No, so, I know. So so when it when it was all over, everybody else, all my other, there were 12 of us in the residency. The other 11 people were all done. And I had to stay on for two more months and, and make up all the time I'd lost and try and find, you know, rotations, which I did. And I, I literally quit medicine. I mean, I just was only taking care of AIDS patients. And I had reached this point where I felt like, you know, you need your doctor to be behind you and believe that you're going to live. And that just wasn't happening. I mean, this was 1992. Everybody died. Yeah. And I had also, you know, lost not just Ed, but also most of our other friends, uh, a number of his exes and my exes. From that time in my life, one friend, one gay man from New York uh, also survived. And he, in our circle, and he, he and I could barely be together. It was just too painful. So I actually quit medicine and I wrote a I book. Did, I didn't Ed, know that you quit medicine yeah, for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ed had started writing a book. It didn't get very far and I decided I would finish it. So that's what I was doing, was trying to finish that book. And then I got a phone call that Hopkins had gotten this grant to start uh, HIV vaccine trials. And I'd studied vaccines in my residency. And would I be willing to move to Chiang Mai, Thailand in two weeks? And I just instantly thought, yes, <laughs> I need to start a new life. And I will just be, you know, I'll die of sadness if I stay in the midst of this New York City dying. So I went to Thailand and walked into another extremely severe epidemic. It was just exploding. But, you know, in contrast to the States, I mean, one of the one of the projects we did was I was the, uh, the epidemiologist working on HIV prevention for the Thai army. Uh, so these are all 21 year old recruits, you know, low educated guys, um, mostly straight, not all. And, you know, the, the Thai Surgeon General, I'll never forget it. He asked me to write a safe sex curriculum for soldiers. Amazing. Which I, yes, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> and I looked at the data and it showed that the men who also reported sex with other men had twice the HIV rate of men who reported only sex with women. So I said to him, you know, your data suggests that 
um, the subset of men is about 7% who are reporting sex with other men have twice the risk. So we also need to include safe anal sex in in the curriculum. And he said, good. And, and you have to remember, this was the time where the U.S. was embroiled in Bill Clinton's don't ask, don't tell, and could gay people serve in the military. And the ties were just way beyond it. Like, whatever you need to do to protect our soldiers, please proceed. So reasonable, then, right? So reasonable. Then he said to me, remember, these are Thai men. So you must do what you can to preserve sex pleasure. Oh, Ties pleasure. And I said, nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get right on it. So, <laughs> it really was. It was extraordinary. And, you know, it was the kind of thing where when we had a study result that seemed to have a public health implication, we'd take it to the government and they'd implement it. Wow. And yeah. And then we did the, a study, it was the first ever done really to try and get a handle on um, the population that are called by the Thais uh, Chow Cao, which is basically the people of the hills. And these are these uh, tribal peoples, ethnic minorities, who are basically scattered all over the hills and mountains of northern Thailand. People like the Aka, the Shan, the Lisu, the Lahu, um, uh, the Tin, the Hmong. Uh, some of them are from Laos. Some of them have come down from Burma. Some of them have come down from Yunnan. Some of them are indigenous, you know, people of, of northern Thailand. But they they live very much in their own villages. They work quite a bit in Thailand. And unfortunately, they also have, in some of these communities, quite high rates of women and girls working in the Thai sex industry. Mm-hmm. And sometimes trafficked, sometimes not. But nevertheless... You know, and and most of them preliterate people, not literate. Um, you know, uh, really oral tradition. Uh, many of them don't have written languages, and you know, hard to reach with education. So we we worked with the Thai Red Cross, and we did a population-based sample across all these ethnic groups in northern Thailand. Wow. We, yeah, yeah. We found that some had no HIV infection. And some, it was up to, you know, one in 10 adults, just an extraordinarily high rate. So that led to obviously an urgent effort to do prevention. And then the guy who was running the WHO program, who's an American in Myanmar under the military junta, met me at a meeting and heard me give a, a Thai national AIDS meeting, heard me give a talk on this pulled me aside afterward and said, we desperately need to do this in Myanmar. We have no idea what is going on with all these ethnic groups. And in contrast, you know, Thailand is 95% Thai. Burma is, who knows, but it's not more than 60% Burman, the major ethnic group, and all the rest is ethnic minorities. So it mm-hmm. really matters. So he got me invited as a WHO consultant to go into the country at the height of the dictatorship. Wow. Suchi was under house arrest and uh, the country was, uh, and I, I, you know, it, it was stunning to be in a place where, you know, people could not say her name. Her image was banned. Uh, you know, they, she had won the 1988 elections and the military had cracked down and killed tens of thousands of people and seized control. And I couldn't, for example, they wouldn't allow foreigners into the general hospital. So I, WHO was trying to get me into the hospital back and forth days and days. And finally, on the day they were supposed to take me to the hospital, the car was diverted. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And then the guy wouldn't tell me where we were going. And I really, for a moment thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to jail. But instead they took me to the Rangoon zoo and dumped me off in the zoo and said, we will pick you up two hours, two hours. Instead of the hospital, was that they're like, not going to do the hospital, but we'll let you do the zoo. And by the way, the zoo is better known as the Animal Torture Center. I mean, it was <laughs> horrible, little, filthy 19th century pages. No. Sad lions and flies in their manes. I mean, it was just impossibly sad. Oh, gosh. Um, and, and I was alone there. And people, you know, they're not used to seeing foreigners at this point. People would look at a man in a suit, a white man in a suit on my way to visit a hospital. You know, people were staring and, and frightened. And then one young monk uh, peeled off from a group of monks and approached me and just started saying, uh, what language, what language? I said, I speak English uh, and Thai. And so he had a little English and he said, you must understand we are not free. This is a war. Wow. The people of Burma are at war against our military. And then he ran away. Wow. Just, you know, yeah. So, of course, I tried to, yeah, I went on, they, they put me on a lecture tour. I went all around the country uh, speaking about HIV and trying to reach out to people. And um, it was just extraordinary. There was a group of people sort of 60 to 80 who had been educated in Britain in the colonial era and who spoke perfect English and were incredibly educated and were eager to ask questions and trying to learn about HIV. Everybody younger than that was just in terror, just sat in terror. And then periodically there'd be these young guys in the audience and they would ask very direct questions and they seemed fearless. And I realized at a certain point, they're all military. They're the only people who have a voice. And that really, that is where I started to realize that the human rights, social justice, democracy issues were so fundamental to whether or not you could have a public health response. And we wrote with ghost names, a very influential report called Out of Control, the HIV AIDS epidemic in Myanmar that really kind of changed the dynamic. And then Suchi was freed finally after six years. She still was under very tight, limited control. And I was asked by some of the democracy forces if I would go and do a training for her and her party and for the NLD youth. So um, I, of course, said yes. And it had to be clandestine. And the NLD headquarters at the time were under intense surveillance. And it was just like a, a shed without even fans with a tin roof. It's hot. And, <laughs> unbelievable. And I, I, you know, I was all ready to go. I walk into this building. Uh, it's incredibly rickety. It is jammed to the rafters. Hundreds of people, standing room only. And I'm led up a kind of rickety staircase. And I walk into this room. And there is Aung San Suu Kyi in a beautiful gown, flowers in her hair. So nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. <laughs> she said, you know, I'm barred from public speaking. Wow. So I'm not allowed to say uh, anything in public. But the order from the generals that barred me from speaking doesn't say anything about uh, translating. So I am going to translate. It was a two-day workshop. I'm going to translate this workshop for you. To which, what can you say except, you know, 
uh, how wonderful. And then she said, so I have a few things that I would like to say, uh, but I can't. So if you would say them, then I'll translate. Oh, wow. That's so smart, eh? So smart. What what is it? She said, first of all, everyone uh, with this viral infection or any other viral infection deserves our compassion. Nobody should be excluded from our compassion. Wow. I love that. Nobody should be excluded from our compassion. Wow. And then the second thing she said was there's a lot of shame and stigma associated with this infection. It's considered that, you know, that women who have it have been immoral. Uh, And she said, nobody is to blame. And it does not matter how anybody acquired this infection. Are you willing to say that? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, she she was very emphatic about young people. And she said, I especially want uh, young people to think about how to protect themselves and their partners. And so we have to be frank and we have to be, you know, not not be squeamish about how to protect yourself from HIV. And I said, absolutely. We're going to talk about safe sex and condom use, which was really at the time all there was. I mean, this was, you know, like 1995. And it's way before there were any other interventions. It was before heart. There wasn't yeah. still effective treatment. And then, of course, um, after the second day of the workshop, uh, as I was trying to leave, uh, my hotel was raided. There were military intelligence officers everywhere. I had not informed the U.S. Embassy that I was there because I'd been told that, that if you do that, then the hunter will know the whole place is bugged, so you shouldn't tell them. So uh, finally, I decided to call. I had the phone number of the UN. There was no ambassador, there was a charge. And I said, okay, uh, you know, there I'm surrounded <laughs> and somebody needs to get a car here, but you know, I can't get out. They'd gotten rid of every, there's no one else in my hotel. And the hotel manager was pinned against the wall by a couple of goons and just absolutely terrified. So they sent an embassy car for me and they took me uh, to the airport and the military went through everything that I had. And I said, you know, please confiscate all of my educational materials and educate your police staff and your security staff about HIV. This is public information. You know, please take it. And the only thing I ask is that you don't throw it away. And they just give me the stoniest looks. And um, and then, you know, they finally they had to delay they had to delay the Thai flight to interrogate me more. And that, that's why we waited until the very last minute. Uh, and then I got on the flight and I was blacklisted for 11 years and I could never get a visa. I could never go back again until 2013. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the simple uh, undertaking of trying to educate people about HIV with real and current information because they were the democracy movement was seen as opposing the military. And that's Mm -hmm. that is what authoritarian rule is like. You know, I've had similar challenges. Uh, I worked 11 years in Russia. And then as Putin clamped down and got more and more anti-gay, we had a big project funded by the NIH with Russian NGOs working with gay men in Moscow. We were running the only uh, anonymous, uh, truly anonymous and confidential HIV testing service for gay men in a city of you know, 12 million people. And they, they shut us down. 
they shut down our website. They said our website, which was which was all about how to avoid HIV and safe sex and condom use and water-based lube and you know and antiviral therapy by then was promoting homosexuality. They left up all the hookup sites and all the porn sites and they took down our informational HIV. Um. Which tells you again, you know, what what authoritarian mentalities are like. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, Burma just had a coup and uh, Russia passed this draconian anti-homosexuality propaganda law. And, uh, you know, the the struggle for human rights and democracy is inseparable from the struggle for public health. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you've done, Chris, you've done such a wonderful and beautiful job of sharing with the listeners both how it impacts people's even access to basic information as well as resources and how it impacts people's freedom. Um, the way that stigma, discrimination, and lack of rights. The last little part before we get to the wild cards, I'm just wondering if you for maybe have a few things you would like to share with the listeners about what they can do to be part of the solution um, whether it's promoting dignity and human rights for particular people, uh, reducing stigma. So if someone's walking their dog and listening to this podcast or going for a jog, how can they be part of creating a better world? You, you mentioned that beautiful um, saying about compassion. I'm just wondering if there's anything, you know, you want listeners to, to, take, to take away that they can do. Well, first thing I would say is, particularly for people who live in what we think of as free societies, democracy requires work and freedom requires engagement. And if you are not vigilant about it and you don't pay attention to it, you can lose it. Mm -hmm. We have been living through an intensely anti-democratic period in our country, the United States, my country. Um, and I think it's really been a wake up call to all of us that um, we have to keep intense vigilance about our rights. And we have to really not lose sight of the least among us, the people who are the most vulnerable. We always have to think about who is excluded and why. And, uh, you know, it's so easy, for example, the, the knee jerk reaction. You know, why is it that rates are so much higher in minority communities? Is it because those people won't wear masks? Hmm. No, it turns out it has nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the occupations they have to do. The fact that one in six Latinos has a job for which you can telecommute, right? And, you know, people of privilege have the luxury to stay at home. We can stay safe. The girl at the checkout counter is sitting there facing hundreds of people a day, mm-hmm. you know, including some who refuse to wear masks. So, you know, always have that use your intellect and heart and mind to keep that compassion alive and really try and unpack what are these social determinants that drive these inequalities? Because if you don't have the right diagnosis, it's not going to help, right? These are not issues of charity, you know? This is not a charity issue. This is about how we have to get to the root causes of why our societies keep replicating these injustices and start to really address them. Mm. I think everybody has a role to play in that, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. And ordinary human kindness means a great deal. But, you know, if you take compassion seriously and you really say that you you want to have compassion for everyone, and this is happening right now on the streets of Rangoon. There are all these thousands of protesters. People are giving roses to the security forces and saying, you know, you are us. We are the same. You are here to protect the people, right? And really trying to have compassion even for those young men behind their helmets. And we have to do that, right? We have to somehow connect. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is that, um, you know, adversity and suffering is a part of life. There's, there's no way out of it, you know? Uh, that's a fundamental Buddhist teaching, but it's also true that um, it's a way through to see that everybody has has uh, loss and suffering in their lives, and uh, we share that. You know, we share in the middle of a pandemic when so many people have lost loved ones. Uh, that is very fundamental. I'm one of the reasons that I'm I'm so moved by Joe Biden. Say is because I think he is a man who has suffered great personal loss, and he's never hidden it, and he has genuine compassion, and he expresses it, and people get it. Mm. Donald Trump could not even fake compassion; he couldn't even pretend to care. He just couldn't even pretend. I mean, to his credit, he didn't try. <laughs> but nevertheless, you know. How do you explain 150,000 dead, Mr. President? Well, it is what it is. Hmm. Okay. That's not compassion. And that will not get us out of this planetary <laughs> fix we are all in together. Oh, my God. Uh, well, thank you, Chris. We have, I know we have a few minutes left. And so something that we do at the end of every podcast some wild cards so the listeners can get to know you although i feel like they've gotten to know you this whole time but some other aspects of you are you are you down with that sure a few sure. minutes quick fire questions yeah wild card one what are you binging on netflix right now oh my heavens i i just finished uh the last kingdom about Uhtred's son of Uhtred, which is a dark ages drama set in the time of King Alfred of Wessex. And a lover of English history. Okay, I have not heard of that. I like take notes. Okay, that's good. My second question, you can go. Okay, imagine all the, everyone's vaccinated and we can travel again. You can go anywhere in the world for dinner with anyone. Who do you take and where do you go? Last uh, winter, just before the pandemic, I did a sabbatical in Cape Town, South Africa. Used to be, yes, I remember uh, when you went there. Circle, yeah, the wonderful circle of friends, queer people, AIDS docs, and uh, I want to I want to have a dinner party with all my Cape Town friends in a restaurant over the sea and uh, watch the whales. Amazing! I love Camp Spay there. So it picked me up amazingly from the airport that I had never met because we had a a shared friend from Mm. Eswatini who passed away. And she's like, I'll just pick you up, Gemma, um, from the airport. I was like, that never happens. You know, it's usually camps and took me to Camp Spay. And we sat and had breakfast and 
sparkling wine and looked at the ocean and I was like, am I in heaven? This is pretty nice. Yes, you are. And Camp's Bay, <laughs> the backdrop, is also the 12 apostles are near there, right? And the lion's head, that, that magnificent lion's head, which I, I climbed. A, a doctoral student of mine came to visit me and uh, I said, how about we have our you know, professor student meeting climbing the lion's head that I've never That's climbed. Awesome. <laughs> and it was great. <laughs> and we loved it. And you know, walking is very good for talking about science. I don't know if you're aware, mm -hmm. but it really is. I don't know specifically science, but I'm I love walking meetings. I love like not sitting down because there's so much of the day is there. Um, so that's amazing. I I can't wait to hear about the next time you go to Cape Town. Mm. And so the last question I, uh, I have for all the guests, you already given us a lot of wisdom, but cause you've just given us so much beautiful things to think about with regards to compassion. But the last question I ask everybody is, is if there's been any piece of advice uh, that you want to share that's been meaningful for you. And I know you've kind of been sharing this all along, but you know, just yeah. to leave the listeners with, with one last thought or something to consider that you found helpful in your journey. The great uh, 19th century uh, Indian, really sage Ramakrishna, who was mm. an extraordinary man. He was a devotee of the goddess Kali. Yes. He, lived, he was a humble temple priest at the Kali temple in uh, Dakshineshwar, the headwaters, Ganges. I've read, I've read his book, I've uh, read his writings, yeah. Well, he had a saying that he used to say to people, which is very simple, up with the practice, down with the view. And this was expounded upon to really meant to understand that you must, whatever it is you're doing, we're all involved in difficult work. You must have fidelity to the practice. You must keep at it and just be unrelenting in your pursuit of truth and evidence and, and public health impact. But you have to be non-attached to the outcome. Wow. But there will be challenges and you'll be defeated. If you, if you hold on to the outcome, that's your ego holding on and, and it's defeating and you get tired. And people often ask me, how do you keep engaged in all these difficult issues and failed states? And the answer is up with the practice, down with the view. You have to have fidelity to the practice you're engaged in and non-attachment to the outcome. I love that. I've got to write that down on my I'm a whiteboard. <laughs> I really <laughs> like that because you're right. It is about the, it's really, that generally is, it's really about the journey. And then if you do your best and you get there, it's kind of like out of your hands at that point, right? You're just like, well, I did. Fidelity to the process, non-attachment to the outcome. Thank you so much. I want to, I know you're such a busy person and I'm so grateful that you took the time to come on the podcast. Thank you, Chris, so much. It was wonderful. It was a and great conversation. I can't wait to, to see you again in person. But thank know. you. <laughs> I'm going to go to your house again. Hang out. Yep. Yep. In the garden. Ah, well, thank you again. And um, listeners, I'll have links. Chris has wonderful writings, books. I'm going to have links up in your bio to, so people can, can find out more about your work. Thank you again and have a wonderful Bye. day. Thanks. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's talk about stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Now I'm just, what I have to tell you?